I want to draw your attention to our handout, especially those of you who are new. Um, I'm in the, in the custom of giving us a, a translation that comes on the, on the cover page of this multi-page handout. And then partly, I think, because I'm an ex-professor and it's just never gotten over the habit, I have some uh, footnotes uh, that accompany the text that you might want to use as you continue to study the passage during the week and as you meet in your small groups. And then on page four at the top is an outline of what I hope to say. And in fact, this afternoon, we have three separate stories. <clears throat> and so um, it's going to be hard to sort of trace a single theme. Um, but I've managed to come up with three C's. One for the story of the calling for a sign. Two, for the story of confusion over leaven, the top of page four again. And then three, confessing Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God, verses 13 to 17. So we have the calling, we have the confusion, and we have the confession. And often in my, um, at, at that point in my outline, I have kind of a summary statement. And those summary statements are well summarized in the beginning part of page one in italics. And I think a fair way to summarize the first passage is in that little quote that I found and put at the top of page one. Jesus refuses to do miracles on call for self-advertisement or as propaganda, the calling for a sign. Then the second paragraph, if God is a faithful provider, as the miraculous feedings demonstrate, then no disciple should be threatened by insecurity and thus become sidetracked from the truly important or fall prey to false teaching. That's the confusion over leaven. And then the third quote pertains to the third paragraph, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and the Son of God. Paul said in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right, well, let's look in turn then at the calling for a sign, and then the confusion over leaven, and finally, the confessing of Christ. The calling for a sign. Let's read it again. Page one. The Pharisees and Sadducees approached him and, as a test, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And in response, he said to them, when evening comes, you say, fair weather for the sky is red. And at morning today, bad weather for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to discern the appearance of heaven, but you're not able to discern the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign shall be given except the sign of Jonah. And then he left and went away calling for a sign. One commentator has, signed, has summarized this paragraph quite well and says the old proverb that you've heard isn't true. Seeing is not believing. Friends, underlying this passage is an assumption that people who ask for a sign are not going to get one, and presumably they're not going to get one because it won't do them any good. That's easy to understand in our postmodern world where foundationalism is dead. In other words, no one is absolutely certain of a bottom line uh, in terms of our theory of knowledge or anything else. 
And we all are experts at weaseling our way out of facts and proofs that are inconvenient or unwelcome to us. So seeing is not believing. This has been put well in a few places, and I have a few quotes that I just want to, um, to uh, remind us of on the version that I have underlined. Bottom of page four. The chief lesson to be drawn from verses six to, from 16, one to four, is that despite the proverb, seeing is not believing. If the Sadducees and Pharisees of our story were not persuaded by Jesus's powers, neither would they have been won over by a spectacular sign from heaven. That's what they were asking for. You say you're the son of God, that's a little controversial. Why don't you prove it uh, by letting your father God bring down a sign from heaven? The truth is that one does not see until one believes. The quoter continues, it is therefore vain to expect hardened hearts and firmly fixed minds to be melted by demonstrations of power. In our gospel, accordingly, miracles, while certainly pointers to God's presence in Jesus, are always therapeutic or salvific. They're always for the purpose of, of healing or saving. That is, worked for the benefit of others. So Jesus says to them in his response, ultimately, no sign will be given you except the sign of, the, of, the, except the sign of Jonah. But he has commanded them for their weather forecasting. And in the weather forecast, there's a little bit of a commendation about a sort of a sign. He says, you know how to read the weather. You're pretty good forecasters. Well, you should be able to tell the sign of the times from what you know is going on. John the Baptist has been here. John the Baptist has called for repentance. I've been preaching around saying the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Don't tell me that you're as ignorant as that. And besides, you're not going to get a sign, except the sign of Jonah. Well, those of you who are good at putting parts of the service together, thinking, well, we've been singing about Jonah, we've been reading about Jonah, so now I understand the connection with Jonah. But that still leaves open the question, what is the sign of Jonah? And in fact, I think there are two signs that come with the sign of Jonah, and one we know well. Because Jesus says in a place or two, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the earth for three days and three nights. So there's a correspondence, Jesus is saying, between Jonah's sojourn in the belly of the big fish, which was a symbol of death, and his being spat out, and Jesus is being in the grave for what is described as three days and three nights, and his resurrection. But there's another part of the sign as well, and that is the preaching ministry of Jesus. Elsewhere, Jesus describes the sign of Jonah in association with a passage that says that the Ninevites heard the preaching of Jonah and repented. So Jesus is saying, just like Jonah, I am a prophet, and I've come to call for repentance and to preach judgment, and that's your sign, and it's already happening in your midst. So folks, you've got the only sign you're going to get. Well, you know, as I thought about this truth this week, I, uh, several things occurred to me. One was a conversation that I had with uh, a friend this week, in which the person was asking about the gospel. They knew the gospel, but here is this um, 
a guy with a collar. I was wearing a collar because we were at church meetings this week. And he wanted to ask questions. He said, you know, I have a lot of questions. And my sense was that he was asking questions that were genuine. But if you ask for questions, you're in control. You dictate the conversation. And as long as you keep asking those questions, you're kind of managing things. And I think that that's what the people who are asking for a sign were doing. They're saying, okay, well, um, we'll go along with you as long as things happen on our terms. And we're saying that for us to believe you, there needs to be a sign from heaven. And no such sign will be given. Um, I was just thinking about whether our YouTube clip might be, be ready, but I'm going I'm to save that for, for another minute. So there's kind of a power issue. And I think the power issue comes in a lot of our relations with God. Here, they want God to show up and bear testimony to the fact that Jesus is real. But where is the faith in that? I mean, it sounds like what they're asking for is proof. Whereas Jesus says, it's all about faith. I think another application to this is a little bit more controversial. And again, it relates to a conversation I had with somebody over the past few weeks. This person was a Christian. And they were saying, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit's in my life. They were saying this in effect. I'm putting words in their mouth. But they were saying, you know, the, the way I live with God is I, I say to God, um, if, if this happens, I'll do this. And if that happens, I'll do that. And it all depends on what circumstances God decides to sort of lay out in front of me. For example, uh, you know, if it rains tomorrow, then I'll know I'm supposed to, uh, uh, you know, go somewhere. And if it's cloudy, I'll go somewhere else. And it was as though this Christian had kind of a program that was based upon circumstances. And it was all up to God. If God does A, I'll do B. If God does C, I'll do E. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, there's something kind of wrong with that. It's antithetical to faith, and it also is kind of a way of tuning out and absolving yourself of responsibility. It's like having God in your back pocket. My friends, there's a principle here that runs very, very deep. And the long and short of it has been summarized well when someone said there will be no calling down of signs from heaven in order to impress people. Such signs degrade God and spook the people of God. God does not want his son to be a showman. There's something very antithetical to faith in this and something very pagan. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't uh, provide you with indications from time to time about what his will is. God can and often does provide signs. But not on such a regular basis that you have him in your back pocket and that you can sort of determine what's going to happen depending upon the circumstances that God unfolds for you. That puts you in the driver's seat. And the Bible is opposed to that very kind of thing. You know, the best illustration of this that I could think of comes from the story of um, Elijah on Mount Carmel. You remember the people were, decide, were trying to decide whether they should worship Baal, whether he's the real God, or whether Yahweh is the real God. And so Elijah said, well, I'll meet you on the mountain. And um, the God who answers by fire is the real God. And so the priests of Baal come and they try to get God to, uh, their, their Baal to answer, and Baal doesn't. They cut themselves. They try to get God, uh, Baal to show his hand, and he doesn't. And then Elijah begins to mock them. And he, uh, before he asks God to call down fire from heaven and to ignite 
a fire, Elijah pours water on it in order to show the people that this is truly a miracle and impossible. So there's a sign for you. But right after that, it's as though the Holy Spirit recognized that this is a bad thing to do, because guess what? A sign has been given from heaven, but now everybody thinks, oh, the Lord is just like a nature God. He's the thunder God. He brings down thunder, and he's, uh, he's part of the world. He's part of nature. So the next thing that happens after that event is that Elijah goes off, and he goes to Mount Carmel. And there is where he receives a word from the Lord. And it's a corrective to the pagan sign showing. The Lord does not appear in a whirlwind. The Lord does not appear in a fire, but he appears in a still, small, quiet voice. My friends, our quest for signs is as elusive and dubious as that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's all about faith. That's the manner of life that we're called to live. And when God wants to, he will do something extraordinary in your life, but not at your bidding. In the Gospels, he does it as part of his own kingdom program, and usually for the benefit of a third party. It was just last week, wasn't it, that we read the story of Jesus healing the daughter of the Canaanite woman. She was not asking for herself. She didn't have a chip on her shoulder. She wasn't trying to manipulate God, at least beyond pleading for his mercy. And God responded. I want to suggest that our quest for signs and wonders and proofs is rather pagan in nature. And it's not as though God doesn't do it from time to time, but he does it in accordance with his will at his bidding in response to faith and not in order to provide faith. So we continue to walk by faith and not by sight. Someone has said that if God likes to show his hand, he likes to do it in cruciform fashion. He likes to show you his son on the cross, dying for our sins. Christian growth often happens not as a result of something marvelous and wonderful happening in your life that's miraculous, but through human suffering and through learning the lesson of bearing one's cross. So my friends, calling for a sign is a dubious enterprise. The resurrection itself is our sign. And of course, it was given not because it was a dramatic thing in and of itself, this wasn't sort of show-off time for God, but the resurrection itself was in keeping with God's kingdom purposes. It was God's plan for a new creation. It was in testimony of the fact that God wants to renew us, that he approved what Jesus did on the cross, and that he grants us new life in him. Walk in the word humbly, and you won't have all of the answers, Ask for a sign if you need one and if you dare, and God might well respond. Don't live like that. Live in faith, sanctified common sense as you read the word and as you say your prayers. So that's calling for a sign. The second comes in verses 5 to 12, and it involves clarifying leaven. Clarifying leaven. We'll read the passage again because that's what's most important. The disciples went to the other side, that is of the sea, and had forgotten to take bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, they began conversing among themselves, saying, well, it's because we didn't bring any bread. But perceiving this, 
Jesus reading their minds, he said, why are you conversing amongst yourselves, O ones of little faith, saying, because we took no bread? Do you still not understand? Do you not remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many containers you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I spoke to you not about bread, but about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of loaves, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I've got bad news and good news. The bad news is that the main teaching of this passage is no longer especially relevant to us. <laughs> it was originally relevant to Matthew's readers who were Jewish Christians who were trying to be coaxed back into giving up Jesus and going back to the synagogue. And Jesus is warning the disciples of any Jewish leader who wants to take you away from Jesus back into the synagogue. Now, if you're a Jewish Christian or you're hanging out with, uh, with uh, Jewish uh, evangelists, among which there are some, um, then the main message of this passage is for you. Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, if Stephen's been able to work his usual magic, I want to show you a, just a two or a three minute YouTube clip on the part of a Jewish evangelist who is trying to convince people not to be followers of Jesus. And I, I just want to show you this because I think it's hard for us to imagine what the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is. So watch for a minute as we kind of play the devil's advocate. And I just want to give you, if we can, a two and a half minute. We can listen. Okay, that's great. Good. We're good. Okay. Point you to Leviticus 11, which says, "Don't eat pork." You know, you know, paraphrasing. Why do we keep Shabbos? It just says, "Keep Shabbos forever." That's why we do it. It says it in the Jewish Bible. If you can't find any passage in the Jewish Bible that clearly says, uh, "God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son," if you can't, if you can't find the Nicene Creed the formula of the doctrine of the trinity that was hammered out in the fourth century under constantine if you can't find the jewish bible we want nothing to do with it it's not that we hate jesus it's not that we hate christianity we, we're not crazy about christianity because they didn't behave well so it's like you know it's like you know christianity didn't do very well in terms of the way it behaved but let's set that aside that's all you need to do you don't need to do like pulling you know you know pulling a, a a bird out of your underwear you don't need to like do all these little tricks we're really not looking for this kind of nonsense we really would like if you want to make a case just have a clear text in the jewish bible that clearly says that god loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that anyone who believed would have everlasting life and not perish. All the Jews will accept Jesus. The reason why we don't accept Jesus, the reason why we don't accept Hare Krishna, the reason why we don't accept the Hindu monkey god called Hanuman, which is very popular in Bali, very popular, is it's not found in um, it's not found anywhere in the Jewish scriptures. Now these folks in Bali, sweet people, but they worship idols. Um, they're doing miracles in the name of the monkey god. Okay, miracles all over the place. Okay. We don't care. 
We don't care about the miracles in the name of, of the monkey god. It's just not relevant to us. They may really be doing those miracles. I haven't seen them, but I heard a lot about it. And it's not relevant to us. I don't care if, they, if a Hindu can resurrect the dead. It would not change what I believe because, uh, in, in, because idolatry, false religions can produce miracles. And the Torah it bears testimony to this. And Deuteronomy 13 warns us that false religions can produce uh, supernatural experiences. It doesn't interest us. So I would say this to the leaders of Jews. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much, Stephen. So and there's our friend who's a, who's a rabbi who is, um, who's got a YouTube channel, and he was uh, trying to um, dissuade people from following Jesus after the uh, Jewish rabbi, Yitzhak Kuduri, in 2006, um, announced that he knew who the Messiah was. He died at the age of 108, and he had a big funeral. 250,000 people attended because he was a very well-known rabbi. And then he asked people to wait for a whole year before he told them who the Messiah was. And after a year, uh, the television stations and the radio stations were ready to broadcast who Yitzhak Kuduri said was the Messiah. He claimed to have met him. <laughs> it was Jesus. And immediately the, 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 the broadcast kind of went, went silent because they, they weren't expecting that. And so this is a, a response on the part of uh, the rabbi uh, to dissuade people from uh, believing Yitzhak Kuduri. So in some circles, the battle goes on and the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees is a real deal. And you'll notice that even the rabbi at the end, he switched from talking about Jesus to talking about the, the monkey god from Bali performing miracles. And I thought that that was actually quite telling. Because if he talked about Jesus of Nazareth performing miracles, that's a little bit closer to home. And what did he say? He said at the end that um, not even something like the resurrection would lead him to change his position. So um, the signs are um, not effective, as we've learned. And that is a small sample of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. My friends, as we learned last week, the Jewish people are dear people. They continue to be the chosen people of God. We pray for them. We discuss respectfully with them. And we seek to evangelize them. Uh, but they are um, a challenging uh, group um, because of their own convictions and because of their own understanding of the scriptures. Which is why at the end of my handout today, I, I gave a number of passages that do answer the gentleman's um, request in part. And those of you who have heard me talk about the Psalms, I think, um, know that an answer can be provided about Jesus in ways that are very direct from the Old Testament. So what is the lesson of the second, confusion over leaven? It's this, and it's much more relevant to us today. The disciples were thinking on a human plane. See, um, they probably didn't have women with them. Um, and I know from going on ventures myself, the last thing I remember to do is bring food. Um, if my wife were with us, we'd be meal planning, and she would be wondering about whether we have enough margarine, whether we have vegetable oil at the cottage, and all these wonderful things. Well, the disciples had forgotten to take bread. They were thinking, oh my gosh, we, we, we bombed out in the grocery department here, guys. And Jesus then says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They hear the word leaven, and they think, oh, Jesus is chewing us out for not getting enough bread. And what he probably was telling us is when you go to the grocery store, make sure that you don't get bread that has poison leaven in it, that a Jewish, uh, that, you know, that somebody would give you. 
And so they're on two different wavelengths. And so Jesus picks up on this and he says, you still don't get it. And he says, don't you understand what I did in the miracle of the 5,000? And don't you understand what I did in the miracle of the 4,000? I can provide for your needs. So don't get hung up on whether you got enough bread because you were so worried about whether you had enough bread that you didn't really understand what I was saying. So the confusion over leaven, friends, goes back to the Sermon on the Mount, and it goes back about being anxious about the daily stuff, so preoccupied with making ends meet and where you're going to go and whether you're going to have enough food and whether you're going to have enough money, that all of that stuff just kind of takes over and you tune out the teachings of Jesus. That's really possible, isn't it? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be anxious for nothing. Let me just go to the end of my passage here and find it. Do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Here's another example about where a narrative section in Matthew informs the teaching portion of Matthew. My friends, the message is simple, but it's hard to apply. We get hung up on the everyday and the ordinary, and we get worried and we get anxious so that our ears are no longer attuned to what we're being taught by Jesus about being a disciple. We cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. The mammon thing can take over. Watch out that that doesn't happen. So we've had calling in relation to a sign, confusion in relation to leaven, and then thirdly, confession in relation to Jesus. We'll continue with the third passage, and I'll read it again. Jesus, coming into the region of Caesarea Philippi, began asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, well, some John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he says to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, jumping to the gun as he often does, gets it right this time. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Answering, Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. I add, a sign from heaven did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in the heavens. Disclosure by God is a matter of divine revelation, by God's grace, and not by spirit, and not by wonders. Well, there's a beautiful list here of, people that, that, of what people thought of, of Jesus. Uh, we've seen time and again how John the Baptist was an Elijah figure, uh, and Jesus is an Elisha figure. Jeremiah was another person who isn't mentioned in the Bible as having died, and so some people think that he's kind of in the same group as Isaiah and Elijah. He was sort of transported into heaven and is one of those special prophets. But Simon gets it right when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. My friends, our point is this. Who do people today say that Jesus is, and who do you say that Jesus is? Who do people today say that Jesus is, and who do you say that Jesus is? I think people today will say, most of them, ah, Jesus was a good teacher. And of course, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful response to that. C.S. Lewis said, that's crazy. 
no human being who said the kind of things that Jesus did is a good teacher. He's crazy on the level of somebody who thinks he's a poached egg or else he's the devil from hell himself. You see what happens when you say that Jesus is a good teacher or you say something other than the fact that Jesus is the Christ? If you were to do a survey and say, who do you think Jesus is? People would say, well, thank you for asking. Um, I think he was a very good teacher. You see, as soon as you do that, you're being asked, you're flattered, you're giving your opinion, you're giving a little credit to Jesus, he's a good teacher, but it's you who is giving credit to Jesus for being a good teacher. You are part of the picture. But as soon as you say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, you put Jesus on such a high level that there's no longer any room for you. And that's exactly where you want to be, is to confess Jesus as the one who came, who is the living Son of God, and who is going to die for your sins. I believe very firmly that people spend a lot of time hedging around who Jesus is, because if they really came to admit who Jesus was, there would be no place for their pride, and they would have to fall on their knees and worship him and accept him as their Savior. And that's something that goes against our human inclination as, pride people, as proud people. Jesus commends Simon Peter and takes us full circle, as I've already mentioned, back to the sign thing. Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. No miracle from heaven, no pulling God out of a pocket, no coming up with the right formula and having a sign from heaven. But my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. That's the only way we can come to know Jesus is Lord is as people hear the message of Jesus, they hear the teachings of the prophet, and they turn in faith to him. And that really is why we do what we do every Sunday. You know, uh, the sermon could be replaced by an apologetic seminar where we could talk about all kinds of reasons for believing in God, but it's the message of this prophet who continues to speak in people's lives today, and who calls us to repentance, and who warns us of God's judgment in the future and who asks us to look at him and acknowledge him as the son of the living God. Therein we find faith, and therein we find life, and it can be found nowhere else. It's a wonderful message, the good news of Jesus. And the Spirit of God likes to use his word in order to bring people to faith in him. And it's my prayer that that might be what he's doing even now. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for your word. Forgive us for trying to manipulate you and uh, putting you on our terms and, and uh, having you perform tricks for us. You have shown yourself abundantly to anyone who with faith and open eyes and open hearts would turn to you. And we pray that we might do that afresh, whether for the first or the thousandth time this evening, or maybe even for the first time, to confess Jesus as Lord, to acknowledge our need of him, and to let him be the means by which we are made right with God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.